Welcome to Thinking Too Hard About Anime, an anime discussion podcast. It's a little bit of history, a little bit of analysis, and a lot of over-examining the Japanese media we love so much. I am your co-host, Aaron J. Shelton, and with me, as always, is... Noah Carden. Uh, Satoshi Coneheads continues. Uh, we're, we're, we're barely out of the station, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a, a cavalcade uh, of, of media in this episode, uh, where we are digging through his early animation career, dipping into manga a little bit more, but sort of hi- him developing his chops, uh, the people... And, and the people he's able to interact with in the industry and learn from um, before he he becomes the before his like feature directorial debut. Right. Yeah, it's it's him uh, in in his early days learning how to like animate, how to like storyboard, all that kind of stuff, doing a lot of layout and that kind of stuff it looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're gonna we're gonna start with live action kind of uh, here. Uh, so the first work we're going to talk about is World Apartment Horror, which is a live-action horror comedy released in 1990. Uh, the story is by Satoshi Kon. Uh, the film was actually directed uh, and co-written by Katsuhiro Otomo. Uh, again, his uh, he longtime uh, col- collaborator Akira. Y- you heard of the first one, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, but also, coming back from season one, uh, Keiko Nobumoto was also a co-writer on this. Uh, again, RIP. Mm-hmm. We, we recently lost her, unfortunately. Um, but the movie centers around a Yakuza who has to evict an apartment building full of illegal immigrants. Uh, so it's the, the, the Yakuza is the main character. He is tasked with, uh, well, there the he runs into issues with language barriers. Um, he's also a horrible racist. Uh, and there are evil spirits that he has to contend with. Again, a horror comedy. Um, uh, we we were not able to get our, our hands on a copy of the live action version. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Cone did create a manga adaptation uh, that was released uh, uh, in August of 1991. Now, Noah, you were not able to read this or watch this, correct? That's correct. Okay, so I'm, 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 I'm driving us through. Okay, um, so I read it because uh, I borrowed it from a friend online. Wink, wink. Um, it's, I think, as far as like English releases, I, I'm fairly certain they're out of print. I think the copies I was looking at the used copies I was looking at were about 200 or so. Um, <laughs> All right. Yeah. So now we're starting the <laughs> World Apartment Horror slash Love and Pop Fund. Yeah. Now that now that maybe Love and Pop is uh, is available again through friends, we'll, we'll see where that money goes. But it, it it's kind of what it is on the tin. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely wasn't going through thinking it was going to be a comedy, uh, kind of, and I guess a comedy of errors. No, that's wrong. But I wasn't expecting it to be in a in a looser vein. Um, it's the Yakuza. I guess in the sense that it's a Yakuza guy who mm-hmm. has to clear out an apartment building so his boss can build on it. Uh, and he doesn't just kill everyone. Uh, so he, he, like, he tries to do karaoke to get them to get out. Uh, they, all the tenants just join in. Um, they, uh... Uh, he he creates a bug bomb that 
makes everyone think there's a fire. Uh, and then you know, there's, some, there's some haunting things. And it's the, the most striking thing, though, about the entire story is that Ita, the main character, he is, he's, a, he's a racist. Um, and it's very much on his sleeve. Um, he, he hates the tenants, uh, even though, you know, towards the end they, they help him because Ita becomes possessed by an evil spirit. There's a, uh, uh, his girlfriend, Annie, uh, is also an immigrant. So the whole, like, I hate immigrants, but when it, they're sexualized, that's okay. Mm. That, that horribleness. And there is a part in the, the, the story where the tenants, uh, some are from China, some, one's from Taiwan, one's Pakistani. Uh, I think one is from Thailand as well. They're all like, hey, Hey, we're Asian. Like, what are you doing? We should all stick together. We're all Asians. Anita says, Japanese aren't Asians. Japanese are white. And that threw me off because I wasn't quite sure where that came from. Uh, so I, I went looking and I'm going to try and get this as correct as I can get. A lot of this is verbatim from, wic- from the wiki. So... Uh, there is a term called honorary white, uh, and this was a term that was used in apartheid uh, in South Africa, uh, which essentially granted non-whites, air quotes, the same social legal rights as whites, uh, and the Japanese were included in this. And again, quote, the designation was ascribed to all Japanese people in the 1960s. At the time, Japan was going through a post-war economic miracle, and this designation assisted a trade pact formed between South Africa and Japan in the early 1960s, when Tokyo's Iwana Iron and Steel Co. offered to purchase 5 million tons of South African pig iron, worth more than $250 million over a 10-year period. With such a huge duel, with such a huge deal in the works, then Prime Minister Hendrik Vo Hendrik Verward determined that it would be disadvantageous to trade arrangements to subject the Japanese people to the same restrictions as other ethnicities because trade delegations from Japan would regularly visit South Africa for business and trade. The designation gave Japanese holes all the same rights and privileges as whites, except for the right to vote, and they were exempt from conscription. Um, so that was with South Africa. Uh, uh, the Japanese were also considered honorary Aryans uh, by Hitler during World War II. Uh, right. due to their allegiance. Um, yeah, so I I learned a lot. Uh, that's, wow. That I mean, that's <laughs> that's pretty wild. Um, it's uncomfortable to talk about, obviously. I think oh, you can hear sure. it in my voice, but it's also something that, like, you have to know. And, like, of course that would affect certain people in Japan and around the world and how they view themselves. Right. Compared to other Asian kind, of, it's 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 wild that I, it's wild that I didn't know it sooner. But it's also wild that I learned it uh, in what is essentially a a goofy haunted house <laughs> manga story. Yeah, like, um, but it's this episode is re- is I think I think in this episode that we're doing, I will have learned the most about Japanese history, maybe. Yeah, or just sort As, of like cultural sensibilities, or like mm-hmm. or recent. Historical, yeah, okay, um, yeah. I, I mean, that's that's such a a wild thing to just kind of come out. Like, I'm assuming it's just like a line or two in in the manga, because I mean, like you said, it's sort of a, a goofy haunted house. This yakuza's got to kick all these people out, kind of deal. 
And it's because that's the thing. The story is about like immigration Mm -hmm. and xenophobia and racism and like this character. He does learn towards the end um, because, like I said, the the immigrants also get another immigrant to Japan to help with the exorcism because Ito does Ita does get possessed by an evil spirit. And my understanding is that within the manga, there is this uh, there is this dream sequence that really drives the whole Ito sort of learning mm-hmm. uh, his lesson uh, that you know in a in a very Satoshi Kone way. But then it yeah, but then it gets like but there's also you know. Uh, uh, a ghost baby coming out of the ceiling and uh, the house sort of junk from the house sort of taking on a, a, a human form. It's, and that's, and that's cool, man. That's cool. Again, the, the power of media to talk about these things, whether directly or sometime within the same work directly, but also like indirectly it's, it's, it, it's not the best story, mm-hmm. but I do like how knowing what I know now, I like how they talked about some of the issues, and I'm 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 very interested to see the movie and and some of the differences that are there. For sure, at some yeah. point, at some point, yeah, I'll definitely have to uh, to seek out the 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 manga version to to give it a read. It sounds pretty wild. Yeah, the manga version is uh, I would. It's pretty easy to get. If you, yeah. If you okay. Get around the internet block. <laughs> If you're if you're reading other manga, maybe not in the most legal way. I see. But yeah, that was that's World Apartment Horror. Um, next on our list is Rojan Z from 1991, which was a feature film. Mm-hmm. Um, a a brisk 84 minutes. I'm, ooh, was, my my favorite. Yeah, <laughs> Perfect Blue is under 90 as well. I love an under 90 minute feature film. Oh, it's so good. It's God's running time. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, so on this one, I get sort of mixed reports. So I'm just going to kind of throw them all in. Uh, so on this one, Cone served as a key animator. Uh, mm-hmm. he was also an art director and did set design. Um, and this was Cone's first animation work. Uh, Rojan Z literally translates to old man Z. It was written by Katsuhiro Otomo. Um, it was directed by Hiroyuki Kitakubo, um, who uh, was the director. They did a segment on Robot Carnival. They also directed the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure OVA from 93, uh, which we'll get into here later. And, uh, and Blood, the Last Vampire, I think, are some of his more notable works. I uh, have to interject and say that he also directed Golden Boy. <laughs> I have not seen Golden Boy, but oh I know you're a big boy. fan. Oh, <laughs> uh, It's not great by today's sensibilities, but it is. It's a fucking watch. Oh, man. Is it any hornier than the horny idiot stories we covered? Last oh, it's episode? way hornier. <laughs> uh, the the English version, which I recommend because the guy that is playing Kentaro uh, does a fantastic job. Uh, it contains the line, oh, how I wish my hand were my penis. It's, uh, it is extremely horny. Um, <laughs> but... You can't anyway, grab anything. Uh, it also has character designs with the same guy who uh, designed um, uh, Cowboy Bebop. It has a great character design, like Wolf's Rain, 
Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm forgetting his name. Hold on. That was two years ago, folks. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you, can, yeah, yeah. you can forgive us. Toshihiro Kawamoto. Um, he did the character designs for Golden Boy, for Cowboy Bebop, for um, the later Mobile Suit Gundam series like 0083 uh, and 0080, uh, that stuff. But um, yeah, that's a. I don't think we'll be covering Golden Boy on, on the <laughs> podcast. Maybe when we get to the double digits. <laughs> maybe, maybe. The um, seasons. Uh, yeah, Rojan Z, though. <laughs> Um, I, I a little more about Takubo. Uh, he was and bringing it back to the podcast. Uh, he he hung around in uh, uh, Anno's sort of sphere. Uh, okay, he was. They were an animator on Macross. Do you remember Love and on right. Gunbuster as well? There's definitely going to be some some connections all over the place. The more we we, we focus on like the, the the creators and directors and stuff like that, so I'm not I'm not too terribly surprised. But uh, that's that's cool to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, the studio was APPP, which stands for the thing that no one knows. <laughs> uh, it stands for another pushpin planning, uh, typically referred to as A3P. Um, they're a, an animation studio founded in 1984. Um, they've done a, a fair amount of stuff. Uh, Project Aco, Robot Carnival. Uh, they worked on the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure OVA series, which we're going to get to in, in, a, in a little bit. Uh, Golden Boy, uh, a bunch of a bunch of stuff in the the late '90s to early 2000s that is pretty notable. Mm, indeed. Um, so Rojinzi centers around an affirmed man, and an elderly infirm man. Uh, he is taken and put into an experimental automated hospital bed that takes care of his every needs. Uh, except the human ones. Um, his volunteer nurse, Haruko, uh, you know, sees this, wants to rescue him from it because uh, he's also crying out for it. Uh, but then eventually, uh, as should happen, the bed, you know, gains sentience based on his dreams mm-hmm. and memories, uh, turns into a mech that can assimilate almost any technology and tries to go have a fun day at the beach. Yeah, yeah, I mean... You mentioned this uh, when we were talking about Dream Fossil, but it is it is shockingly similar to the uh, the one story where the the old lady is on the the runaway hospital bed to the beach. Okay, thank you. Okay, I'm not I'm not crazy. Like it's it's There's... a <laughs> it's kind of hard not to see those two being related somehow, even though. Um, the story and screenplay are attributed to Otomo. It's it really feels like Cone's story there, uh, just kind of uh, zhuzhed up with a, a robot bed and stuff. Um, I mean, even even by the end of the the movie, uh, Haruko, who is a, a nurse in training, um, she's like running down the street in her nurse's outfit, exactly like the nurse from uh, that story. What was it? Um, it was Beyond the Sun. Beyond the Sun. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah, like it's it's. I'm I'm wondering if like Otomo just kind of took the story and you know because he had to kind of like rewrite it to incorporate like the bed and some other stuff into it and he just kind of you know I I don't know I don't know how how like the story isn't considered uh, one of Cone's stories. It's a uh, it's it's kind of strange, honestly. It's. Uh, I think the thing 
So my guess is that, you know, they're they're working closely together for mm-hmm. years. I mean, of course, they're going to bounce ideas off each other. They're going to talk things through. Um, I would hazard a guess that the reason that Cone isn't mentioned is because this is, you know, uh, released in 91, so probably went to production 89, 90 mm-hmm. with the quick, you know, they're at this time. What we've seen, at least, is like, you know, you get a year or two for a production. Um, I mean, Cone's a nobody at this point. Especially compared to Otomo, who, yeah, because Akira was ninety, yeah, nineteen ninety, yes. So they're they're they gotta slap his name on it, especially since he didn't direct it. There's actually a I think manga when Manga Entertainment did the U.S. release, they might have lied a bunch in all their marketing because they definitely said from the make creator of Akira, and that was kind of it. Mm. They mm. didn't go into depth. Um, I actually have. I'll play it here because I think it's a very nice uh, bit. Uh, but I have Roger Ebert's review from a 1995 of Rojan. I forget how he we'll, – we'll hear how he pronounces it. <laughs> um, but he really dug it. But he talked about how it was like from uh, – he talked about how it was from Otomo. So that's just the power of marketing. Also, just a, a quick footnote. Akira released in 1988 – in Japan, I think it made its way mm. to the states in 1990. Thank you. Um, yeah, so the 1991 is the Rojin Z. Uh, that's a Japanese release date. Yes, because um, it did not. It, it actually did not come to the states until November of 1994 at the Fort Lauderdale International Film Festival. <laughs> All right, <laughs> big. You know, the the stars come down. <laughs> Fort Lauderdale. Hey, you know what? Giving some props to smaller film festivals. At least they get some stuff that probably would not get a a big release in the States. So props to them there for that. Smaller ones are the only ones I've been to. Um, Fort Lauderdale, huh? (laughs) um, uh, So yeah, so this is the first time you've watched this, correct? Yes, yes. I've heard of Rojin Z a couple of times, but I've never really actually sat down to watch it. So um, uh, it was a lot of fun. Like it was, it was a very cute uh, little film. I, I think the ending is is kind of hilarious. Okay, uh, yeah. I again, this was a a movie that was pumped out by the Sci Fi Channel. Mm-hmm. When in the mid '90s, if you're broke, that's kind of the only way you're getting anime. Mm-hmm. Is whatever the Sci-Fi Channel decides to dish out to you. Um, but like I, the first time I watched it, and the thing that still sticks with me is the mechanical design, and I just love the like blocky, blocky and tubey is how I can kind of describe it. Well, yes, yes, it, it it's like everything's connected by like goop. <laughs> The, the way things move. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the idea of any robot that can assimilate other machinery into it. It's badass. Yeah. Even if it's a hospital bed with an old woman's voice. <laughs> um, yeah, and in watching it again, I was I, I was going I was a little afraid that it wasn't gonna hold up through time. But no, it's it's a solid, quick, fun romp. Yeah. Um, it's it's super it's a super simple kind of story, but there's enough character in all of the 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 characters 
um, that they they really stand out. I think probably like the most generic person on screen is probably Haruko, our, our protagonist. But uh, yeah, like everybody is very like unique in their way. It's a bunch of bunch of old people helping out too. Like it's uh, it's a lot of fun, and yeah, it, it's I think it definitely holds up. It's a yeah, it's a it's a cross generational effort. Um, Haruko, at one point, Haruko employs a, a group of elderly hackers mm-hmm. to to help her free, uh, what is his name? The old man. Uh, Takazawa? Takazawa, yes. Yeah. Um, I think she just kept calling him Oni-san. Uh, Oji-san. It means Oji-san. like uncle or old man. Oh. Thank you. Um, Which the I, I watched the the subtitled version and they kept translating it as like Mr. Takazawa. I was like, that's that's not that's right. Incorrect. That's no, incorrect. No, I, I I saw the same version. I'm like, wait a minute. Wag um, my finger. That's incorrect. <laughs> I know enough to know this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's you don't always you don't always see as many elderly folks in anime mm-hmm. in animation. So that's cool. Um, uh, I just like the idea of like a bunch of like old men hackers, like stealing tax information and and stuff like that. I thought that was very fun. Just a mess with things. Yeah, um, and there's like a weird sort of connection between Rojin Z and Pat Labor too about like the militarization of Japan. Yeah, there's. I mean, this is this is all these works have i think more than half of what we're covering today has like the these political themes mm-hmm. um and this one it's definitely it's about healthcare, of course and yes. sort of the the changing values of japan where they're pushing you know pushing aside the elderly yeah um it's also like i mean the it's been a growing thing since the 90s and it's only been getting worse but the growing elderly population in japan because they don't have they have almost you know very very low population growth there um and that's been an ongoing issue is that there's going to be more retired people or more elderly people than middle-aged or younger people in japan very very soon if not already what was like the pop fact i don't know if it's still true or was true uh but like there was one year where adult diapers outsold diapers for children for infants mm, yeah who who knows yeah um, but yeah, there, uh, so yeah, ta- talking about that, um, this every like 15, 20 minutes, there's a twist on everything. Cause it mm-hmm. is the beginning is kind of very basic where it's, um, <laughs> you know, basic about a, a robot medical bed. Uh, but it's not that at first, like for half the movie, it's just like, he's Takazawa. He, he's like captured. He's not really in control of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Haruko is like going above and beyond trying to, to fix everything uh, and try to set him free. Uh, and then it like it, then it twists into, well, now he's in a mech, even like the supposed villain, the leader of the company, the head of the company mm-hmm. has like, has a nice, he does a face turn. <laughs> yeah. He has a nice change of heart. Like two thirds of the way through the movie. Like Haruko just appeals to him hard enough. They was like, all right, yeah, let's do this. And then and when we, we get the real villain. Well, when we say Haruko, it's also the name of uh, Takazawa's, uh, uh, his deceased wife. Yes. So in that essence, that's Haruko the AI appealing mm-hmm. with this man. Who like, 
Because I think that's the thing. It, it's revealed that he's like, he genuinely wanted to help. He genuinely thought this was a way to do it. Yes. But he got duped again by the military, who wanted their own AI robots who could absorb any tech. Yes. There's a, a fight between a killer robot and a robot bed. <laughs> who can absorb the most? Yes, who can absorb the most? There's okay, so the ending. Uh-huh. Um the I think you're talking the very, very end where you think things have gotten back to normal. Haruko, the AI, has died. Uh, but no, she has returned her core was preserved by a cat. She's yes. returned as a giant Buddha statue to, to to take Takazawa to the to the ocean again. Um I'm pretty sure they're all dead. They they might be dead. <laughs> I think that's the ending. Cause it's they see Buddha. Uh-huh. They bow their head in a sort of comedy freeze frame. Then it goes to white, and all you hear is destruction and screaming. I think everyone's dead. <laughs> they might be. It might just be the uh, the giant Buddha tearing apart the building to get the Takazawa. So who knows? That yeah, it, it's left up to to interpretation. Uh, check out next time on Rojin Z. <laughs> With that, uh, this is like almost two minutes, but I'm going to play this. This is, again, this is from Cisco Niebert. This is Roger Ebert. This is his video peak. This is his video pick of the week. Uh, and this, this was in 1995. So let's let's all enjoy, shall we? Pick this week is Rujan Z, a new animated film by the Japanese director Katsuhiro Otomo, whose 1990 film Akira has become one of the best-known animated visions of a nightmare future world. Another one of those horrible futures yeah but this is at least more much more colorful okay now he's back with a quite different but equally savage satire about health care for the aged in the 21st century scientists are alarmed that there are too many old people and the caring for them is a dead end for medical students obsessed by their careers so they invent a machine called z001 which becomes the permanent home of old people they live in the machine it bathes them massages them shows them movies and video games and even attends to their bathroom functions excretion disposal this task which has so long been the measure of true devotion is taken over uncomplainingly by z001 or yet foul smelling diapers and bedpans the machine is run by its own atomic reactor and the movie even helpfully explains that in the case of a nuclear accident the machine will instantly bury itself and its patient in concrete in the case of Z001, it goes haywire and runs away with its patient, leading to a bizarre chase through the city. I don't believe it! How did he get himself up there? Americans are still mostly accustomed to thinking of animation in terms of Disney musicals or cute little animals. But in Japan, where animated films control up to a third of the market, they're made more for adults. And in this film, you can see a director like Otomo using them for satire that would be difficult or impossible to pull off in a conventional movie. The name of the movie is Rujan Z, and it is now slowly rolling out across the country before being released on home video in a couple of months. It's worth seeking out. Rujanzi. Rujanzi. So again, the, that's the marketing machine happening where even Roger Ebert doesn't realize <laughs> Tomo's not the director. Mm-hmm. Um, but but now I want look now I want Roger Ebert. Someone Photoshop this. I e me. <laughs> I need Roger Ebert with a body pillow. <laughs> He's a weeb. Rest his God rest his soul. Oh man. 
<laughs> I want to hear more Roger Ebert anime reviews. <laughs> okay, maybe. Our special episode, <laughs> special bonus episode. We just listen to Roger Ebert talk about anime. Siskel um, and Ebert at the con viewing room. <laughs> Hand check. Our AMV. <laughs> Here's our review of this year's AMV winners at MegaCon 2022. Oh, um, man. He, another thing I like, uh, sort of another quote from him is, quote, I cannot imagine the story being told in a conventional movie. Not only would the machine be impossibly expensive and complex to create with special effects, but the social criticism would be immediately blue-penciled by Hollywood executives. So, I mean, in, in the mid-90s, yeah. Yes to both of those. Yeah, definitely. Um, but that's, but yeah, I, uh, I'm still, I'm glad, I'm glad you got to uh, experience Rosian Z and, and the fun. Um, yeah, it's still, it still rules. Um, the discs aren't, it's not streaming anywhere that isn't YouTube. <laughs> um, but the discs are still available. I think it's out of print, but they're still pretty uh, reasonable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you want to, but definitely a recommend. Yeah, definitely, I agree. It's a especially if you have like eighty minutes to kill, like you just knock this bad boy out. It's great. Uh, so up next we have Pat Labor Two, the movie, um, being the second Pat Labor movie directed by Mamoru Oshii in nineteen ninety three, produced by Production IG. Bandai Visual and Toko Toho Kushina Toho Kushinsha. There we go. Um, Kohn uh, primarily did like layouts for this film, so he would basically actually set up uh, like what the shots should look like, do the um, a lot of like the background uh, drawings, that kind of stuff. Um, Pat Labor Two is so Pat Labor. Is actually separated into two different timelines. Uh, oh boy! <laughs> there's the television timeline and then the movie timeline, which starts with a series of OVAs and then the later movies. Um, Paddleboard the movie, Paddleboard the movie two, um, and three. There is a third one, but uh, this film has some of the best animation I have ever seen. Oh my god! And I. I think the thing to be clear about is that I think when we think of good animation, the very surface level thing is motion, mm-hmm. right? Which is still, which is very good in this. Um, but I think if, if I can, I, I think what struck me is that every little moment has so much technical prowess built into it. Um, extreme lighting changes within shots. Um, reflections and refraction within windows is like helicopters pass by glass buildings. It's the, it's the, the physics mm-hmm. of it are so realistic <clears throat> for hand-drawn animation. It's insane. Yes, it's it's absolutely nuts. Uh, Production IG, especially with like Pat Labor and Ghost in the Shell, goes all out when it comes to, to stuff like this. Um, I'm sure if you have been an anime fan for long enough, you have definitely seen the the gifts that have come out of this movie where it's like um, 
one of the characters, Noah, testing how her her Pat Labor's like hand moves and stuff like that. And it's this really detailed shot of this gloved hand with like these little metal like actuators and, and things like that on it. And you see her like roll each finger into like a fist and then you see this super detailed like bare metallic like terminator looking arm do all the same things that her hand is doing and like twisting and turning it's all super finely detailed you can see all the different like actuators and like it it moves how you think it should move and looks how you think it should look for being a giant robot it's it's just excellent excellent animation like you're saying with like all the different reflections and lighting changes and all this other stuff. It's, it is just a beautiful movie to look at. And the, the story is really, really interesting because it has to do with like the, the state of Japan being in, has to do with the state of Japan post world war two and that they cannot have a standing military. They have what they call a self-defense force which uses military equipment and training and things like that, but they can never act in an aggressor manner. They can only ever use it for self-contained issues or if they're being, um, if they're accompanying a, another military force, like in a UN situation or something along those lines. The, the main plot has to deal with a uh, former GSDF, Ground Self-Defense Force officer, who is looking to take revenge on Japan for a failed UN peacekeeping mission in Cambodia in 1999. Um, there's a lot of, like, you know, subterfuge and conspiracy. It's it's very much... Um, and, and playing the self-defense force against the Metropolitan Police, who are our, our heroes, our main characters from the, the Pat Labor franchise, um... And how they have to uh, basically undertake a, a, a sort of uh, secret mission to to stop them. But it's a lot of um, politicking and and uh, trying to track down like what's actually going on. What's the reasoning behind it? Where this guy is going to, to strike next? That kind of thing. Because um, there's a lot of, oh, is it actually our own people doing this? Is it um, an outside force? Is it the United States uh, intervening? With, uh, with all of this stuff going on. Um, and then it ends with this <laughs> incredibly intense uh, action scene in uh, a artificial island's tunnel system for, for flooding that our, our villain is using as a hideout. That is, again, some of the best animation I've ever <laughs> seen. It, it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, one, one shot that really blew me away because uh, it's, again, reflections. Extremely hard to do in, in any kind of animation. Um, it's uh, the two, I forget their names, the two main uh, sort of characters that we're following. They're in an office, and the way it's framed is that they are, of course, in the foreground, and behind them is a window. Mm-hmm. And we're on that shot forever, and you know they do some things where it's, well, they're going to stand still for a bit, but no, they're matching that reflection perfectly, and they really didn't have to do that. No one would have known. <laughs> no one would have cared otherwise. And the, and they just it's it, the amount of work you you see it on display mm-hmm. in this film. It's incredible. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Mamoru Oshii always delivers a, a great uh, sort of near future sci fi story. 
uh, and production IG is uh, top of their class. Like they like uh, aside from this, like I said, they also do uh, the Ghost in the Cell franchise. They were a part of um, the production of Fully Cooley, relating it to last season just a little bit. Um, all sorts of of films. Yeah, like Dead Leaves, they did parts of uh, the animation for the Kill Bill animated sequences, um, stuff like that. So they are uh, they are a, a fantastic company to to follow if you want some great animation. The other thing that I, I realized on this, and I think watching this so close to when we covered Shin Godzilla last year, mm-hmm. um, Again, it's just from 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 being an American, um, but it's I think both movies use the U.S. and especially the U.S. military as this as sort of uh, I mean in the same reference to where like a nuke is where it's uh, uh, this this deadline this ticking bomb mm-hmm. outside the peripheral of like well if Japan if we as if we as a country cannot handle this then America is going to come in. And, and deal with it and deal with it in a way that we definitely do not want to. And again, it's, it's realizing that of course that's there, right? Of course mm-hmm. that, that fear and the memories of, of the U S occupation of Japan, the, 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 the bombs, mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah. Like you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's all got to do with post world war two, like our, our presence in Japan. Um, like there is, uh, there's a treaty of mutual cooperation, co- treaty of mutual cooperation and security between the U.S. and Japan, which obliges the U.S. for support when it comes to defense, uh, air control, uh, communication, security, and disaster response. So I feel like whenever there is, especially a very Japan-centric sort of, um, you know, political military sort of drama or something along those lines. That is always going to come in as some sort of factor, whether or not it's, you know, a little bit more grounded with something like Pat Labor, or mm-hmm. if we're going all out with Godzilla showing up to to wreak havoc. Um, that is something that, if you're going to be playing it as a very sort of realistic sort of narrative, is going to come into effect. That hey, the U.S. has a very big foothold over Japan even today. Um, that is probably never really going to go away, and that is going to really affect how Japan can protect itself or otherwise uh, with any sort of military power, be it the the self-defense force or not. So, yeah. The U.S. has certainly uh, thrown its weight around, and uh, I I don't see it ever really going away, unfortunately. Mm. So, yeah. It's again, uh, I think a, a side benefit to doing this podcast and you know, not just watching and diving deeper into the, into uh, the anime we consume, not just casually enjoying it, not just casually watching it is mm-hmm. is the type of things where we 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 learn about the culture and you know learn learn a different point of view. I mean, I don't want to sound like cheesy or hokey, but like it, it's true. I mean, we've been <laughs> we've been absorbing ourselves in this quasi-academic way mm-hmm. and it's like it's cool uh, i'm glad it's another reason why i like doing the podcast is sort of this thing the, this learning about other people yeah definitely like it's uh like you said it's it's kind of quasi-academic it's definitely like 
giving you those first kind of steps to further uh, research something to really sort of like interrogate uh, your sort of notions or preconceptions about stuff, which, you know, is definitely a, a good thing, I think, you know, mm-hmm. even if it just comes from watching some expertly animated uh, cartoons. Yeah, knowing what Oji-san means. Yes, exactly. Okay, uh, is there a level below quasi that we can use? I feel oh, like that's God, that's where I, we're that's where we're at. I, I have no idea, honestly. Um, yeah. So, so after Pat Labor two, did you have anything oh, else? Um, uh, so, as of this recording, Pat Labor is available. I think all of it, at least. So you uh, can. I I have this myself. Um, there is from I believe uh, Made in Japan. That's M I M A I D E N, as in you know a maiden. Um, Made in Japan released a Blu-ray like box set that is all of it, so you can get the movie and TV timelines as all one big set. Um, I want to say they also have them as standalone uh, releases as well. But yes, you can get Pat Labor fairly easily now. Um, if you're if you're not into physical media, uh, how dare you? But also, <laughs> uh, it's available. It's available on High Dive. Uh, is where I watched it. Gotcha. I the whole, at least the movies, and I think OVAs are available there. Yeah, um, and yeah, Palabor. Palabor in general is a good, I think, slightly lesser recognized uh, mecha series, at least here in the states. Um, a lot of people think of like Gundam and stuff like that, but Palabor, Palabor is pretty damn good too. So go check that out. Yeah, I I have not seen any Palabor. So <laughs> jumping into, I think what it's ostensibly. It's the last part of the whole series. I think. Uh, it's the last part of the timeline because it goes for the movie timeline. <laughs> it goes the OVA series, the first movie, the third movie, then the second movie. So yeah, I was, I was a little lost, but uh, but caught up, caught up pretty quickly. Uh, I, mean, I, also- I think the the one thing that kind of shocked me is how uh, Noah. The, the the woman uh, towards the end of the film, one of the Pat Labor pilots. Um, she's actually like the main character in a lot of like the TV series and uh, I want to say the, the other movies and OVAs, but she's in this shockingly very little. It's much more about like the uh, the leadership team of the, the Pat Labor side of the police. Uh, I thought that was actually really interesting. Yeah, they kind of, they do start it off with her because she's the one... Mm-hmm. Doing the 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 calibration and the training, and then it's well goodbye until ten minutes from the end. Yep, pretty much. It's a that's actually kind of interesting. You get more of the other characters, uh, but yes. So that's definitely out there. Go check it out. Uh, next, we are going to JoJo's Bizarre <laughs> Adventure. The uh, what years were they? Ninety four. Um, yeah, like the ninety three to ninety four OVA series. Um, it was the, the first adaptation of the Stardust Crusaders arc of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Um, the kind of interesting thing is that when they first uh, adapted it, it was literally only the second half of Stardust Crusaders. Um, and then they would go back and do the earlier uh, half of the series, hmm. which it, just feel, it feels a little weird. It feels a little weird. Why not start the whole thing? From the beginning, but whatever. Uh, so Satoshi Khan worked on this uh, primarily episodes five and actually was it 
five. See, this is what this is what happens when they uh, they move the episode numbers around. Uh, for primarily episodes nine and twelve. Um, for episode nine, he did the animation, and then for episodes twelve, he did the direction and storyboarding. Um, so, is this was this your first time seeing this OVA? Uh, yes, this was his first time seeing my OVA. Uh, just to double check, episode 12 is Kekuane, Duel in the Barrier. Correct. Okay, good. Okay, I did watch that because I watched, I watched the last three episodes of this OVA, so I did not watch the entirety of it. Okay. Um, I did what IMDB told me to do, and like he directed, it claims it's him writing those last, or directing those last three. Hmm. So, I, but again, IMDB is, who knows? Right. I mean, so those last three episodes are excellent, so you should definitely watch them. Regardless. Oh, it ruled, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the main episode I was given was episode 12, Duel in the Barrier. Uh, but, yeah, I actually own... <laughs> side tangent, I own one of the cells from that episode. Oh, you went and bought it? Yes, I bought the... Uh, so there's a cell of... I own a cell of the... Um, the, the senator, senator, right? Yes. Or like the ambassador uh, in the car. That's that's awesome because I that part was very good. It was Dio. He basically confiscates a car, makes this douchey senator drive for him, and there's a there's a shot where he's trying to escape. So it's all one continuous shot. The senator and uh, the camera's facing the car. The senator moves to the left, gets out of the car, almost gets hit by another car, ends up going back in to the original car mm-hmm. to sort of and as it like it's a cool it's a really cool visual of like showing yes. off the world um uh, and its power but like in a very satoshi kind of way mm-hmm. yeah so i believe this is actually his first time really directing yes yes i believe yeah i believe this is the his his first time directing, yes. yes. So, so directing the this episode of, of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, um, and it's uh, you know it's towards the end of the series. It's it's when the our heroes are are finally you know uh, facing down Dio, the big villain of the series, and not just Star Wars Crusaders, but kind of the entire franchise to a degree. Um, so, getting to see Cone. Uh, step up to you know adapt this to animation for the first time uh is really satisfying there's a lot that goes on in this episode that is um you know really intense but also it's all executed very very well like i can see very clearly in my mind the shot of dio like stepping out to the street turning and looking up and seeing that seven up sign that uh joseph and kakyoin land on and, and try and like figure out their their game plan and then uh, seeing the way that the world works, Dio stand works, um, seeing the time stop, seeing how things like will start to move and slow down and stop, um, seeing how he maneuvers through all of that uh, really stands out. And let me, let me, you go ahead and talk. I'm going to check something real quick. I was going to say again on this episode, it, when Dio is using the world and he's walking down the street and bumping into people it's that very cool like time has stopped but there's still some momentum so people are getting pushed like just a little bit and like the inertia and the in the slow so it's like a heart it's like for a second 
it looks like it's going to do the thing that we think it's going to do within the physical world, but then it like slows down and creeps. There's like a tray of knives that go flying, but then stop in midair. It's just, it's very cool. This is, I, I have not finished the new uh, TV series of JoJo Bizarre's Adventure mm-hmm. of JoJo's uh, Stardust Crusaders. I'm like halfway through that. Yeah. So I got so I got spoiled a little bit, but that's fine because yeah. this version kicks so much ass. It's beautiful to look at. I I didn't have to watch it dub. Uh, that was the version that I was able to find. Um, which I kind of wish it did, but it wasn't. It wasn't too bad of a dub. Yeah. It's. <laughs> It's, it's got an early the, 90s dub. The end of the uh, the Kakyoin episode is... I love that delivery of uh, Jotaro saying, Yeah, I got you closer to mess you up. <laughs> it's so just kind of over the top, top mm-hmm. and hokey. Uh, do you want to know what that American senator's name is, by the way? Yes, please. Wilson Phillips. Of course it is. <laughs> oh, a Rocky. Oh, so good. It just needs to hold on for one more day. <laughs> if nothing else, uh, it, it this whole bit of the podcast and going through some of these older animes, mm-hmm. I don't want to use the term like golden age or like, I don't want to be the person who's like, things were better. But animation was really good, and, like, hand-drawn animation was, like, at the top of its game at this point. Definitely. For sure. There is, like, it feels like one of those, like, oh, it's it's amazing how all this stuff was good when I was a kid kind of things. Where, like, all the best stuff came out when I was a child, and Mm -hmm. all the new stuff is crap because I'm old and don't have any joy left in my life. But, um... There is just something about hand-drawn, cell-animated shows and movies and, and things like that that just, something about it hits different. It There's like a texture to the animation that feels like rubbed off when you start getting more and more into the digital animation age. And it feels like the lighting and like the the actual the way that the cells move and stuff like that is just so different and so much more visually interesting to me at least compared to a lot of like newer shows especially like you know comparing it to like newer um like shonen shows stuff that has a lot of episodes and stuff like that obviously there's going to be like some budget issues and things like that but you know thinking back to like cowboy bebop like the way that that was animated is closer in line to the way that some of the stuff in JoJo's is is animated, and it all just it feels like a warm blanket, you know. <laughs> I, I we can't say there's no nostalgia to it. Yeah, like no. I, I we definitely have to recognize that, and sort of when we came into the the hobby, it discovered the medium. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's definitely that. Um, like you said, I think there are budgetary things that are in place. Um, I think I'm trying to ov- – OVA has de- definitely had more time, I think. Than, more than, time than and TV's, a bit of a budget. Than, like, you know, it's yeah. producing a series with a movie budget. So you get like – you know, it's like a miniseries or something along those lines. Yeah. You're You're getting this big old budget to make a slightly smaller version of a thing. So you, you have a little bit more time and effort being able to put – 
be put into it. Yeah, you you don't have broadcast schedules that mm-hmm. you're beholden to. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I think there there's a ton of factors for this. Um, like it's, I mean, we'll see it in Magnetic Bros. It's just, ugh. Is this is this is a very I think this is a very good era. It's also I don't think we can dis we might have to just do a whole series on Otomo, um, but I don't think you can discount the Akira effect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and like yes, let's throw all the money at animation because it makes bank, baby. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a, it's kind of amazing. <laughs> do you do you know the fact about Akira and colors? Um, go on. They. They made new colors when That's they were right. making Akira. <laughs> I'll, we'll, I'll just leave it there. We'll come around it's, to Akira eventually. It'll, yeah. Um, that might, I feel like just that might have to be its mini. I've, I've watched some videos about how, no, you don't understand how yeah. technically involved and impressive this dang movie is. Absolutely no CG. It was all like hand drawn cells. It's not all on ones, is it? Uh, I. That's a good question. That's. I, in, I mean, know. again, insane if it is. Yeah, but yeah. So JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, the '90s OVA series, um, very good. I definitely think this episode. Like, there's a lot of like very good like weight to all of the animation in this episode. Yes, um, and like I said, like. Especially those last two, 12 and 13, are some of the best animation. Like, 13 has one of my favorite shots where um, Dio throws, like, fistfuls of knives at Jotaro while they're fighting. And then causes does the world, or while well, he's trapped in the world. Uh, and the knives fly, and you see them just, like, slow down and, like, stop just in front of Jotaro. Like, they're about to, to get him. Um, and just the way that those are animated, like, it's so cool looking. It's just so good. I, it's I, it's hard not to gush about it and, and just say, oh, it's cool, it's cool, it's cool. But it's it's just so visually striking. And there's just such, like, a weight and precision to the whole thing that uh, I rarely see in, in, in most shows now. That, uh, yeah, that they just did an excellent job with this, this OVA. I actually own... Uh, 12 and 13 on DVD. Ooh. Uh, I've had this for actually for a while and it came with two little cardboard cards of the tarot cards for the world and the star. So Jotaro and Dio stands. Uh, It's very cool. Very nice. I I had to go to our friends at archive.org to, uh, (laughs) to experience this. Now I'm thinking, so this is me thinking out loud. Okay. I'm going on a big tangent, maybe. I'm curious what the effect of Dragon Ball Z is on all this. Now, I know <laughs> that uh, Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball Z, sort of late 80s, early 90s, mm-hmm. so kind of before all this. But I'm thinking more of the uh, the export and the syndication here in the States of it. Mm-hmm. And how much did that, and maybe even a Sailor Moon, as well like i'm curious what the effects of those two series and their popularity here in the states what effect they had on the animation industry in japan and this might be like a little independent topic mm-hmm. or maybe someone out there knows there's 
I'm curious what that did to like budgets and like time restraints. And was it like, oh, it doesn't matter if we're thinking about an international audience. They'll eat the shit up anyway. It can be not as time involved. I mean, I know the video market Mm -hmm. slowly died down in the mid-90s as well as far as OVAs. Um, So I I would say just from my sort of cursory knowledge, just sort of what I see here and there, that I don't think they really cared until relatively recently. I don't think there was a big, oh, we've got to make this fast enough to get it to an international audience until Mm. fairly recently. Um, I mean, there have been a couple small anime booms, and then I think as stuff like Crunchyroll and like streaming became more of a thing, that is when the Japanese animators and those production companies and studios really started thinking of outside of Japan for their productions. And I I wouldn't be surprised if that's still, like, a lesser issue for them. Like, it's not a priority mm-hmm. to worry about the Western market for release. They obviously want to, and there have been more companies... Um, partnering with Japanese animation studios for releases in the West, like Funimation. Um, The current JoJo's series produced by David Production is, I think David Production is actually owned by Warner Brothers Japan or something along those lines. There there is an ownership there that uh, is part of the reason why it's, it's getting like the simulcast on like night on Netflix, that kind of stuff. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. I know William Street, part of uh, Cartoon Network, has done uh, partnerships with, uh, I think, Bandai Visual and Production IG to produce the second season of The Big O back in the early 2000s and the FLCL sequels, which we're not going to talk about. <laughs> Ever? Ever. I, I don't know. I haven't seen them. I, I, I don't want to, honestly. Uh I don't think there's anything really there to talk about. <laughs> I will gladly talk about the original one all day, every day. I don't think the second or third FLCL sequels uh, really, really land at all. So, um, but yeah, so I think I think now with like My Hero Academia and like Demon Slayer and stuff like that, I think that is definitely getting much more attention for international release um i think my hero academia is like the first time i've heard of anime releases being referred to as seasons because uh, mm, you're right that that's something that struck me relatively recently over the past like maybe five years is people referring to like season releases of anime and i'm like what what are you talking about <laughs> what what are you talking about there's no such thing as an anime season. It just kind of happens. They produce all of a series over like however long it takes. They might take like a break here and there to to really kind of you know help with production. But I've never really thought about it. It's never really been referred to as a season they, un- until recently. Yeah, my hero. They do put. I think after that first bit, they're like, "Oh, everyone loves this. I guess we have to put it out every year now." Yeah. Yeah, because, um, like, I don't know, because, I mean, there's, like, 
Dragon Ball has sagas and stuff like that, but I don't think that ever really stopped production. Like, that's why we got filler. Mm-hmm. Same thing with, like, yeah. One Piece and Naruto and, and Bleach and stuff like that. The the You're... They just kind of kept going, and <laughs> when they couldn't make stuff out of the new source material, they had to do filler stuff. And now, like, I, like My Hero doesn't have filler for the most part, right? Uh, they... They will do some re they they do, but it's okay. usually like one or two episodes is like a recap kind of thing. Okay, so I mean, there's like a, there a recap some. episode, and like maybe having like an episode of filler or like basing it off of like some other source. Because I know like My Hero has like a couple of like spinoffs and and stuff like that. Like they do. It's um. <laughs> there. <laughs> it's like I think the filler comes now from a, at least at that point. It might just be. Um, the episode order, because I think they've had to consistently put out 26 episodes every year for like the past four years hmm. is how it is, how it looks like it's structured on top of like, you know, a movie now every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, yeah, I don't know. This is sorry I got us onto that. But I, I, I think my main my thinking is that like I think there's a visible switch or like turn Within maybe a, maybe it's everyone getting off the Akira style because I think that I mean, infinitely influential mm-hmm. is Akira, um, and that probably dominated style and subject matter and you know mm-hmm. popularity for like that day for the for probably the entirety of the '90s almost. Yeah, and so I'm curious when that I'm curious the fact about the factors and like when that turn happened because there's like a stylistic and like subject matter turn i feel like mm-hmm. at the turn you know once we hit went into the 2000s at least as far as like what came over here it's sorry i'm thinking <laughs> i'm thinking out loud. i'm like i want to know how everything is connected mm-hmm. and when did when did people stop hand drawing things in a bitchin way <laughs> i think a lot of it just has to do with per like progression of technology, mm-hmm. being able to make things of a similar quality faster, um, and you know, introduction of computers. Because I mean, especially like as we get into further into the '90s in animation, it becomes less using like a camera on like looking at a cell mm-hmm. with like a background behind it to make that um, to make that frame to taking those cells that we've drawn. And scanning them into a computer to assemble it, to eventually drawing on the computer and using the computer to assemble it. Um, and now, more and more frequently, we're also getting like fully CG, like 3D rendered characters, or getting those animated and then rotoscoping, or you know something along those lines, like applying certain types of filters or cell animating, um, cell animation like rendering styles to make it look flat, but really it is still a, a 3D model. Like, that is where things are sort of progressing now, it feels like. Um, and and that could be it, in the sense, it's like, that traditional cell-based hand-drawn animation was there for decades. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's pe- you know, there there's, it with that amount of time and that amount of people working on it, you learn so much about dealing within that, uh, within the medium of cell animation. Mm-hmm. And then all these, like you said, all these new tech, all this new technology comes around slash shifts 
mm-hmm. you know, quicker than before, we're not getting to the point where we're like able to master. I think we're probably going to land here in three. 3D is going to be like, I think is where we're going to land for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. like that, that whole workflow of like, well, actually we made these models and we rigged them now. It's not like mm-hmm. yeah. frame by frame. And us and everyone like getting to work with that and maybe mastering that. Maybe that's what we we have that to look forward to. These people yeah. mastering that medium Cause, for animation. Because I know there are some series out there. Like the main one that kind of jumps to mind is Land of Illustrious. That is you know, like entirely CG animated, like anime series. Um, I haven't seen that much of it. I just know about it. But there's also like the the Berserk movies and the recent Berserk animated series which we're not going to talk about uh which those were the movies were mostly cg with some scenes being um at least 2d animated mm-hmm. um the berserk 2016 series was like entirely cg and unfortunately it really really shows um there are i think i think now we are starting to get some good cg animation out of anime series but for the most part whenever it shows up it sticks out like a sore thumb unfortunately um Mm -hmm. but yeah i think i think you're definitely not wrong in that cell animated like hand painted cells were the the mode for so so long and then there's just a sudden shift over to computers and it's you know that sudden shift like you're you're basically having to change an entire like skill set for the most part like there's a lot of stuff that doesn't translate over uh, so you're having to relearn a bunch of stuff and then you know like i said it's for a lot of series it's just trying to like pump out episodes like week after week so there's not a lot of like time and attention going into it you're just trying to get the series out there and that's some that's another thing that i'm reminded of is that you will get a difference in quality of animation from the tv broadcast to the disc release they they have to go back and redo it. Yeah. They will go back and they will redo it or they'll just go in and like add more stuff to the frame, that kind of stuff. Like it is kind of crazy. <laughs> Some of the differences you will see if you watch a broadcast versus a like Blu-ray or DVD release of a series sometimes. Um, I think that Berserk series was actually like that. The, the Blu-ray home release had some fixes, but it still wasn't enough to make it a good or watchable show. Um, But (laughs) Tropic of the Sea from our last episode, the version we had was different from the original release. True. That was, that was remastered. It's Evangelion. (laughs) (laughs) There's, there are, uh, there's like, Three or four different versions of the original series Evangelion. Sorry for the... I, I hope everyone enjoyed <laughs> that tangent about the state and future. Yes. <laughs> and hey, if if you know anything about this and would like to educate us, please let us know. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll gladly accept any sort of tweets or emails or anything like that. We'll, we'll give you our info at the end of the episode, but yes, please let us know. Let us know if you have any thoughts on it. Um, yeah. Let us, who, who, who amongst you has like tracked the major influences as trends in Japanese animation for the past two, three decades. Let us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Give us that info. <laughs> well, it looks like I'm going back to school. Got to get my doctorate on Japanese animation. <laughs> <laughs> Got my thesis statement. Mm, yep. 
Um, it, it kicks ass. <laughs> it kicks ass. So uh, <laughs> after after a little detour, um, we're getting into the last uh, item that we'll be covering. Uh, this is part one of Memories, an anthology film from 1995. Uh, we'll be covering Magnetic Rose. Uh, this was directed by Koji Morimoto. Uh, they were an animator on Akira, Kiki's Delivery Service, City Hunter, Fist of the North Star. Uh, some of their other directorial work was also on Robot Carnival, uh, the segment Franken's Gear. Uh, they also did Beyond uh, from the Animatrix, which was a very... I, I watched that recently uh, in preparation for the, for the new movie. Um, and that was, that was... I was like, oh yeah, that's a fun segment. They kind of... The idea of glitches in the Matrix being a haunted house mm-hmm. that kids play in. Uh, so Cone, he the main main credit is as a writer. I believe he was also background designer and layouts on this as well. Um, mm-hmm. This was based off an original short manga by Atomo. Um, the anthology film it's three parts. Uh, I only watched the first part uh, for the purpose of this podcast. Um, apparently, that is the best segment of it. And I mean, they're right. Pro- without seeing the other two, I'm like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> This rules. Um, some other fun facts. Uh, Yoko Kano comes back <laughs> into yeah. our lives. Uh, she is the composer. The The main music coming from uh, Puccini's Madame Butterfly and Tosca, which uh, if, you're, if you're an old Simpsons fan, it's the music that plays when Barney puts the short film up about being an alcoholic, so that's all I could think about for a minute. So... Uh... One of my dogs uh, was named Tosca. Ooh. Because when we found her at the dump uh, and we're taking her home, she loved to howl and bark. So my my mother called her Tosca. So. Aww. Um, I didn't really realize that Yoko Kano had done the music for this uh, at first. And after watching it, I was like, man, the 90s sure did love, like, some space jazz, didn't they? (laughs) (laughs) Sure did. And then it's like, oh, Yoko Kano did the music. Of course. All right. Makes sense. (laughs) I need to get this on Blu-ray. I just Mm -hmm. need to. This is, like, if you, yeah, I think I have to say, if you watch anything out of what we cover uh, this, this episode, Right, stop the podcast right now. Watch Magnetic Rose. It's forty-five minutes. Uh, I think uh, I forget who put it up on YouTube for free. Uh, like, I believe uh, Retro Crush has it on YouTube for free. Yes, um, uh, but that's four eighty. Yep. Even at four eighty, oh my god, <laughs> it looks incredibly good. Yes, um, um, the story revolves around uh, space salvagers of the ship of four crew members uh and they get a like any you know good space horror uh they get a distress signal uh they are duty bound to investigate and in doing so they discover a a ship with the ghost or the ai memories of a former opera singer who has surrounded herself uh with the memories of her past through like sort of semi-danger room tech where there are holograms mm-hmm. uh, projected onto these uh, uh, again I love I love an amorphous robot <laughs> that can absorb <laughs> and change shape yep. uh, to sort of fill the scene and it's mainly one astronaut dealing 
uh, with the ship accessing his memories uh, to try and trap them there. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredible. Um, it starts very sort of alien-esque with, you know, gotta go investigate this uh, bunch of blue-collar workers having to go investigate a, 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 mm-hmm. what call it, a an SOS and then... It- and distinct, not just from design point, but like distinct personality in these uh-huh. characters. Like you, you get their thing pretty oh, yes. quickly, very quickly. Um, and then, yeah, it just kind of turns into this sort of, uh, it's like psychological horror in a way. Uh, you know, it has to deal with our, our, our main character, Heinz, uh, dealing with a bunch of past trauma and his, his own memories while trying to escape a giant, killer robot space station (laughs) it does Mm -hmm. such a good job of that aspect of it of heinz when you Mm -hmm. realize um what actually happened in his past Mm -hmm. um and why the the space why it's so tempting what the spaceship is offering and like uh, and again like i mean that's a credit to everyone but like i think especially cone cone is from this and the short and, and the short manga collection He's really good at that kind of Twilight Zony story. Mm-hmm. He's really like I, I don't know if we talked about this before or made that connection, but it's this. It's not necessarily a twist, but it's here's something very here's a here's a premise, and he like explores it to the fullest, and like he knows when to hit the beats of it. I mean, and that'll just I mean that's gonna show through all of his work. Uh, mm-hmm. going forward but it, he's what at this point in time from what we know now and what you know what do you think if you had to define his genre what would you say it is cones genre like i mean i i mean i know the like technical answer is like well he doesn't have one he 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 played around in in different like he did comedy yeah. he did sci-fi but like that's uh, it feels like like probably wants to say like like a magical realism mm-hmm. to to some degree like especially when I'm thinking of like his some of his later stuff like Paprika and and Paranoia Agent and stuff like that. Um, but I mean it it always feels like there is some sort of psychological aspect to it, whether or not it's like a thriller or if it's just examining like how our memories and dreams and and things like that can affect the real world. Um, that's that's the kind of direction that he seems to head towards from from here. Like obviously, it's it's Otomo's story, but I think Cohen very much makes it his own uh, with the the screenplay sort of adaptation of it, um, and then Morimoto executes on it expertly. Um, but yeah, like I think. It feels like sort of a, a psychological, magical realism sort of genre, or like that is kind of his wheelhouse. It feels like. Yeah, that's that's probably the best way to to describe it as magical realism. I was, I was gonna say thriller. I mean, it's definitely degree, yes. Like thriller definitely seems to be like his it, big genre that he kind of goes towards. But like, it's he's. He's just so he's so good at keeping these little secrets that you don't even realize are there mm-hmm. and then revealing them at the correct time. And like sort of I feel like that's like that's kind of what a thriller is. It's it's an investigation, right? 
right. to a degree, um, even though not every character. Without you realizing that, oh, actually, you, the audience, are in the middle of an investigation uh, of some. You're going to discover some things. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. Like he is, he is an expert at at making those sort of twists or those reveals very impactful and making you kind of think back on it and kind of seeing those like those little clues that you didn't quite like connect and then once you see it it's it all kind of locks into place yeah even in uh in torica you again i don't know if it's genre of familiarity again but like you get the as that story progresses you're like wait a minute this is <laughs> this is real ridiculous and dumb why is all this happening this, oh, is, this okay. is going all a little too well yeah He's really good at shooting for a 15-year-old. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Um, yeah, I just, you know, he's he's an expert at this kind of thing, and it's only going to get better from here, it feels like. Yeah, um, it, I mean, on it, I don't know how many more time, how many ways to say, like, it's the pinnacle of hand-drawn mm-hmm. animation. I, like, it, I genuinely... I mean, maybe Akira, but like I genuinely, from that standpoint, I genuinely can't think of anything better and like plays with the medium so well while also being like such a good story on top of it. Like a, just a good, solid, like ghost story, uh, mm-hmm. s- space horror. Yeah, it's, it's not quite like a haunted house in space. While I was watching that, I was thinking, this is a tangenty episode, sorry. Um, so, like in. Space horror feels like the only horror genre where the characters are motivated by duty. We're mm-hmm. like in a in a cabin in the woods situation. It's people going where they shouldn't go, right? It's it's a lot of horror is about a character trespassing um, where they sh- where they don't belong. Like there are actually characters that warn them in the story, like, "Hey, don't mm-hmm. don't do this." Yeah. Where th- any sort of space horror is like, "Well, we have to because well, our jobs are making us." Or, or yeah. we're duty-bound by this maritime law. Hey, hey, space is a terrible place to be. <laughs> so if you run across, like, an SOS or something like that, you you're go. kind of, like, honor-bound to try and help out. Like it's, it, it's, But I think it's an, like, Event Horizon, which I think there are, there are you know, thematic mm-hmm. and visual uh, uh, connections here. That was a rescue mission. Every every space horror movie is a rescue mission. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it, it also kind of extrapolates upon, because a lot of space, any, anything that's supposed to be ostensibly like our reality, but in space, has got to be so far down the timeline that you kind of extrapolate upon today's current systems so that it then makes, oh, why are you in space? Because your job puts you there and your job expects you to do these kind of things and you are a part of this corporate structure that requires you to do these things. So that's kind of why we also get mm. like why we get the, the crew of the Nostromo having to go and do this stuff. It's because their ship received a distress signal that then caused them to cause the ship to wake up everybody to go and get this thing that turns out to be an, an evil machine alien that sucks your face and stuff. Um, like your job did that to you. <laughs> the company did that to you. Yeah. Um, with a 
Event Horizon, again, it's your job, this time kind of being more of like a NASA kind of thing, so ostensibly more... Um, it's more, Expert. I guess, it's more of a research, it's more of a, like, for the good of humanity kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that that kind of, like, hey, we should go and, and do this thing, we should go and do this rescue mission, we should go recover this information to figure out what happened, at least. That kind of thing. And then with, you know, Magnetic Rose, it's kind of, again, it's more of the former, the alien kind of thing, where it's, hey, these guys are a bunch of, like, salvagers in space. And they get this signal, so they have to go investigate. Like, they are reassigned to go and investigate this thing. And then we get the, the haunted house mm-hmm. aspect of it. There, um, I mean, there's a new genre for you writers out there. The space tourism horror. It's a mm. bunch of kids sticking around in space. Go to a moon they shouldn't. Yep. Because they want a private moon beach? I don't know. Yeah. A moon beach that turns you old. Uh. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> So, uh, Memories, or rather Magnetic Rose, was produced by Studio 4 Degrees C. Um, This is actually one of their first feature films. Uh, They would go on to do stuff uh, like uh, Spriggan, Tekken Concrete, the Berserk Golden Age arc movies. Um, They did, uh, they co-produced the 2011 Thundercats series. All right. along with a bunch of like OVAs, they've done a bunch of uh, Western animation as well. Like some of the, the DC animated movies uh, were done by them. So like Batman, Gotham Knight, Green Lantern, Emerald Knights, uh, Halo Legends. Some of the, the parts in that were done by them. Uh, and then they actually did like four different parts of the Animatrix, not just Beyond. Ooh. Uh, they did Kid Story, The Second Renaissance, and A Detective Story were all by them as well. Um, so yeah, they are a, a a real big name in, in animation. And like, I don't think I've ever seen anything by them that wasn't uh, incredibly good looking. <laughs> <laughs> um, they are up there with production IG. Uh, but I, I, I don't think they're quite as like mechanically minded as them, but they are still real up there with their animation style and, and execution. Yeah, just uh go watch it. <laughs> go go be blown away. Yeah. It's it's uh it's incredibly good. Like you said, it's on YouTube, it's on Tubi yeah, uh, for free. Old friend. So, so go check it out. But maybe maybe go see about getting that Blu-ray because man, I I'm sure it will be worth it. Yeah, there um so going through all this, what a wonderful education for Cone. And like experience working with all like these huge these huge crossover names within the anime. He's he's working on like the top productions and the top people at this time. Mm-hmm. It it really feels like Otomo especially kind of um, is sort of a mentor in a way, uh, or at least a a a friend that is definitely kind of bringing him along as, as Otomo gains more and more sort of notoriety and, and fame in a way that he's definitely using that to help, uh, Cone, uh, build his career in a way that, uh, we end up with some, some absolute amazing films here very, very shortly. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I think if you do the math, it's, at this point it's 10 ish years that they've been working together in some capacity either as like an assistant yeah or or through the animation work yeah it's definitely getting right up on that that sort of uh that time frame for sure and uh so there's 
Um, I want to say, let me look at this. So Morimoto said this, uh, is quoting Cone. And this is in reference to a magnetic rose. Cone said to him, we had to escape the magnetic field called a Tomo, otherwise we wouldn't succeed. And again, that's in reference to the short. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I think it's, I like to look into it as like, I think Cone is getting, this is Cone getting confident in his abilities and mm -hmm. ready to, to break out on his own within animation. Uh, he also talked about, and I think a lot of writers feel this way in, in this field. You know, you look at the production and, you know, quote, I would have done things differently, not in like mm -hmm. a bad way, but like you start to want that control, I think. And, I, and, it, and it feels like this might have, my interpretation of this is that it feels like Cone is getting ready to, to go do his own thing. For sure. I think uh, Memories was 1995. And then, yeah, Perfect Blue is two years later. So, like, pretty much right after this, it feels like he goes directly into working on Perfect Blue and beginning mm -hmm. that process, probably. So, I mean, we we won't get into that next episode. We have a no. we have a few more mangas to cover, but hold <laughs> hold on. To, we're almost at Perfect Blue. I'm I mean, I'm excited to talk about all of it. Mm -hmm. But especially Perfect Blue. Um, but thank you all so much. Oh, anything else? Uh, no, I think that's that's it for me. All right. Um, again, thank you all for listening, for hanging out on this very tangenty episode. <laughs> um, we'll see how many they're all going to stay. Who am I? Who am I kidding? Um, if you want to contact us, you can. Um, there's a few ways to do that. Here it comes. Here they come. <laughs> If you want to talk to us, uh, you can email us at thinkingtohardpod at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on what we've discussed. Maybe if you have some insights, uh, as we asked before. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at thinkinganime. Um, and if you would like to support us financially that is, and, and help us get that actual physical copy of World Apartment Horror... Um, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash T-T-H-A-A to tha And clicking on the support button, you can support us with a monthly donation of $0.99, cents, uh, $4.99, or $9.99. And you can cancel that at any time. Not required, uh, but it would be... We, we thank you so much. It would be greatly appreciated. Um, you can find me on the internet at Aaron J. Shelton on Twitter. That's usually where I'm hanging out. You can also listen to my other podcast, Kame House Party, a improv comedy Dragon Ball-based podcast I do with Vince White uh, every week going through the entirety of Dragon Ball. Uh, I also stream usually every Thursday around 8 p.m. Eastern over on twitch.tv slash Kame House Party. Uh, where we're playing a variety of games and having a variety of fun. Noah, where can the good folks find you? So they can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kamenotaku, K-A-M-E-N-O-T-A-K-U. Uh, I also stream sometimes on Twitch as well at twitch.tv slash Kamenotaku, K-A-M-E-N-O-T-A-K-U. Mostly on Monday afternoon, evening. I've been playing through Fallout New Vegas, uh, having a grand old time. I'm trying to stream a little bit more during the week, but it's, you know, having a day job can really put a damper on things like that. So, um, <laughs> how I know it will be different by the time this releases, but how far are you on, on 
New Vegas. I don't know what your goal is for this run. So uh, I just wrapped up uh, Old World Blues. Uh, I'm going to be going and trying to start uh, Lonesome Road here soon. And then after that is done, I'm going for the Yes Man ending. Um, I'm basically, for the main game, I'm basically up to the the strip. I've like met Mr. House the first time and all mm-hmm. that. So uh, I need to go and, and wrap that up. But yes, I'm trying to actually like complete the game like all the DLC in the main game. Oh wow, uh, a, a long journey. Yes, very. A it's going for a while. There's definitely been out. some hiatuses in there, but uh, and you know, playing it once a week is uh, <laughs> maybe makes that a little bit longer than usual. Excellent, uh, but yes, check that out. Um, and yeah, we will be back uh, next month where we will be covering uh, the manga's opus. And I think, uh, do we agree to this? I think we're going to cover Seraphim Wings of 266-613-336, which Cone did in collaboration with Mamoru Oishi. So this is, and yeah, not as labor intensive, maybe, (laughs) for this next episode. Uh, We'll see. Yeah. Maybe we'll suddenly have some very strong opinions about uh, Opus or, or Seraphim. Um, yeah, join us next time. Again, thank you for listening. And as always, I've been Aaron J. Shelton. I've been Noah Carden. And we've been thinking too hard. <laughs> <laughs>